The John Morris Show, episode 64. Now, before I get into this episode, it's just a quick note. Uh, I've been battling the flu all week, so as you listen to this episode, you'll probably, I sound really funny. Uh, it's just because I'm coming off of the flu, so <laughs> bear with me a little bit. If I go off on some delirious rant in the middle of the show, now you know why. All right. That out of the way, let's get into the episode. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. You are now listening to the John Morris Show. My name is John Morris, Army veteran turned freelance web developer. And each week I bring you a fresh look into the latest news, advice, and next steps for the self-made web designer and developer to help you reach your dream of coding for a living faster. Thanks for giving me some of your time today. Now, let the episode begin. I'm super excited to say that this episode is sponsored by TopTal. Now, finding and hiring talented developers is really hard. Not to mention, after the large piles of resumes and profiles you have to sift through, Once you find a reasonable candidate, it's difficult to evaluate a developer's skill unless you're a developer yourself. But TopTal makes it easy. TopTal is a large network of the top 3% of software developers in the world. And to be accepted, applicants go through a rigorous screening process that tests technical expertise, problem-solving ability, communication skills, and more. And the acceptance rate is just 3%. TopTal's team of engineers meets with you to understand your needs and handpicks just a few developers from their network for you according to your needs. Once you interview a developer, you can start working with them on a full-time, part-time, or hourly basis for as long as you need. It's very flexible. In fact, they've been so successful that they offer a no-risk trial period for all engagements. If you're not satisfied, you don't pay. And thousands of companies, including Airbnb, JP Morgan, Zendesk, and more have turned to TopTal when they need developers because TopTal allowed them to hire rapidly, with confidence, and hire only the best. So go to johnmorrisonline.com slash TopTal, that's T-O-P-T-A-L, today to start working with top-tier developers. John Morris Show listeners will receive one week of TopTal development credit and a no-risk trial period for up to two weeks. So go to johnmorrisonline.com slash toptal now to sign up. Oh, and for all my developer friends, this is a network you want to be on. Forget having to compete with millions of other developers in those open networks. Get on TopTal and place yourself in the top 3% of software developers in the world and let the projects come to you. You can visit johnmorrisonline.com slash toptal and click on the apply as a freelancer button to get started. Hey everybody, welcome back to the John Morris show. Have an outstanding show for you today. Coming up in this show, going to be talking about the seven surprising upwork proposal mistakes that I see every day. We're going to get into Apple standing up to the FBI over encryption. My thoughts on this. It's a little political, but it also involves us tech heads, so I want to talk about that a little bit. Also going to talk about how to win the mental game. How I create catchy YouTube thumbnails in Photoshop. Thinking of social media as branding in your freelance career. And as always, 
our weekly Q&A. Now, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, then you want to head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash iTunes and subscribe to the show there if you're on an Apple device. If you're on Android, you can subscribe on SoundCloud at johnmorrisonline.com slash SoundCloud. And of course, as always, on good old YouTube at johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube. You want to make sure and head on over to one of those spots so that you never miss an episode. All right, so before we get into all of that, I want to talk about the seven surprising Upwork proposal mistakes I see every day. And this was actually an article that I was sent and read through it. And I thought there was some interesting stuff in here because these are things that you know you may you may not see every day and they're really, really specific to Upwork. And when I talk about this stuff, I try to keep it a bit more generic and give you kind of big, broad concepts for any freelance site that you might be on. But these are really, really specific to Upwork, and I thought that you would get some value out of these. Now, this comes from the site FreelanceToWin.com and Danny Margulies, and hopefully I said that right. And so let's run through these different mistakes. So the first one, mistake number one, is thinking that you can't charge higher than the client's budget. And this one makes me chuckle a bit because... I remember when I first started, this was one of the things that I always kind of uh, obsessed over or would always get me a little worked up as I'd see uh, a proposal for a project and I'd read through the project then I'd look at the budget and there's, I was just like, they don't match at all. It, you know, they just wouldn't be close in, in, in any way. And what Danny does here in this post is he actually shows a screenshot of a project the budget that was listed, and what he actually charged to the client. He shows two different screenshots here. And in one case, he uh, charges double what the client's budget was. And in the other case, he ends up charging triple what the the client's budget was. And I can tell you from experience, having been on Elance and Upwork and all the different freelance sites, this is absolutely true. And here's the thing. It's just as hard for clients to know what their budget should be as it is for you to accurately bid how much it's going to cost. So if we're telling the truth, most of the time when we bid out projects, we're, there's there's an element of guesswork to it. Well, for clients, they need to know even less about web development. So their budgets are even more guesswork. So you can't get too wrapped up in what their budget is because they really are kind of guessing. And if you know that the project is going to be more than what their budget says, just bid it out how you think it should be bid. Uh, and, you know, if the client uh, is actually going to hire somebody and, and, and do so based off value, then that's not going to be a problem, especially if in your proposal you mention that, hey, there's just no way that, that, that you're going to get a quality job done for that budget. So don't be afraid to charge higher than the client's budget. Chances are they were just guessing in the first place. Mistake number two is focusing on years of experience. And I like, he actually posts a picture of a book um, talking about this. And, and the idea here is you could have been a web developer or uh, a freelancer, or copywriter, whatever, for 10 years. But if you were a crappy developer for 10 years, that really doesn't mean anything. So years of experience doesn't talk about the quality of those years. Now, if you're new, 
this is an advantage to you. You can actually bring this up in your service description and say, hey, look, you'll probably see lots of people on here talk about how many years of experience they have, but that doesn't talk about the quality of those years. And then you can go into talking about your qualifications and why you have more quality and so forth. You can actually kind of turn that on its head. So you don't want to uh, you don't want to necessarily lean on your years of experience. If you have those, it's probably good to mention, but you can't fool yourself into believing that if you say you've been a freelancer for 10 years, that people are just automatically going to trust you because it says nothing about the quality of those years. So you want to move beyond that pretty quickly into talking about the quality of those years. Mistake number three is being a sleazy salesperson. So. His line is, and I want to read this because I thought it was pretty good. He says, it's fascinating. Almost everyone reacts. Uh, actually, he says, there's an old trick where a sales manager hands a pen to a job candidate and says, sell this to me. And he says, fascinating. Almost everyone reacts by listing out reasons why the manager should buy the pen. And a minute later, they're being shown the door, ha- having no idea what went wrong. And when you're hungry to make money on Upwork, it's natural to tell clients why they should hire you. But like selling the pen, it doesn't work. So instead of focusing, and if you've listened to me for any amount of time, I harp on this all the time. I talk about this specifically with uh, freelance sites and your job proposals and so forth. Every developer on the planet, in their service descriptions and their proposals and everything they're doing, are telling these clients how great they are. So they've heard every version that you could possibly dream up to tell them how great you are. They've already heard it. I mean, go go to any job on Upwork and look how many proposals there are, 20, 30. You know, they've read through some of those and they probably bid, bid other projects and every one of those is telling them how great they are. They've heard it in every way possible that you could think of. So if that's how you think you're going to set yourself apart and win the job, you're mistaken. Instead, and Chris has, or uh, Danny has an audio on here from a client of his named Chris, who talked about why he hired Danny, and it's worth listening to. And I'll link to this article over on the show notes page, JohnMorrisOnline.com/slash sixty-four, and you can listen to that audio. But the 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 key words are things like trust, being a human being getting to know you, you weren't trying to sell me, you respected me, you talked like a real person. I advise this all the time in your job proposals. Try to start strike up a conversation and just listen and talk to the person. Don't just have some canned response about how great you are. That's what everybody's sending them. So if you want to stand out, actually act like a human being and try to have a conversation with them. All right. Mistake number four is writing your proposal upside down. So this is this one is especially specific to Upwork, and I thought this was kind of interesting. So when you when you uh, write a proposal, it has you it actually has you fill out the boxes in the opposite order of which the client's going to see them. So it has you write a cover letter, and then any additional questions. So do you have any questions about the job description? And the point is, most people are going to spend most of their time writing that cover letter. However, when the client gets it, the additional questions box is actually the first thing that's on the top. It's above the cover letter. 
So if you spend all your time on the cover letter and then you just use the, do you have any questions about the job description as an afterthought, you're doing it in the reverse order of what the client sees it. So you actually want to spend all your time on the, do you have any questions about the job description? And oh, by the way, go back to the point before and actually, you know, try to be a human being and talk to them and have a conversation in that box. Uh, if you spend all your time there, that's what they're actually going to see first. So that's where you should be spending your time. And then the cover letter actually shows up dead last with what the client sees. So that's very, very specific to Upwork, but it's a neat little trick that you can use to make sure that you're getting the most important thing in front of your clients or your potential clients uh, first. Mistake number five, again, if you've listened to me for any amount of time, you're going to know this is a big no-no and that's using a canned proposal. And the reason that that's a problem is because I don't care how well you write it. They're going to, it's going to come across. They're going to notice. And the immediate thing that's going to happen is, well, if they're, if they're cutting corners and not willing to spend time in just writing me the proposal, then they're probably going to cut corners and not want to spend time to do it the right way on my project. And you will be gone immediately. So you want to actually read their proposal and address it. And you want to specifically call out things from the proposal to demonstrate to them subtly that you actually read it. That's going to go a long way with clients. So if you're posting canned proposals on Upwork and you're scratching your head as to why you're not getting any jobs, that's the reason why. That's one of the reasons, probably the biggest reason right now. So don't use canned proposals, read their job description, reply specifically to that job description and purposefully call out things from it to demonstrate that you've actually read it. Oh, and go back to the earlier point about being a human being and having a conversation and not just telling them constantly how great you are. Mistake number six, not looking the part. I'm going to actually send you over to this post to look at this because I think it's worth looking at. He actually uploaded two different pictures to photofeeler.com and you have impartial strangers vote on how competent each picture looks and he shows the results here. It's worth taking a look at the two different pictures. It's actually the same picture just cropped a little bit differently and you can see how the difference in the way that picture was cropped or the way that picture was kind of taken um how much more the one people thought that person was competent so it goes to show you how important your picture is and so it's worth going over and actually reading this again johnmorrisonline.com slash 64 i'll link to this post over there mistake number seven is being too cheap and the idea here is if a client is on average tends to pay a certain amount of money. So for example, he shows his profile because he also hires developers and it shows his average hourly rate paid was $27.73, but he shows a list of proposals he got for a job. The average was $11.59. So most people were bidding lower than what he has clearly communicated he's willing to pay. He's willing to pay at least twenty-seven seventy-three an hour because that's what he's paid on average already. 
yet you have people bidding as low as $3.33. So as he says here, think about that for a second. I'm offering someone $27 per hour, and they're negotiating me down to $11. So the simple advice here is don't do that. Pay If you're bidding on a job for a client, look at this stuff. Look at the average hourly rate and what they're willing to pay, and then adjust based off of that. So don't negotiate yourself out of money uh, because there's no there's no reason to. And to be honest, if someone is willing to pay $27.73, when they look at someone offering $3.33, that person in their head is probably going, there's a reason why they're only offering $3.33. And so they're going to undervalue that person and probably not hire them. So now you don't want to go, you know, you don't necessarily want to go 10 times what their average hourly rate is, but you at least want to go up to it and, like we said earlier, not even be afraid to go even more. So those are the seven mistakes that Danny Margulies, uh proposal mistakes that he sees every day. And so, again, I thought this was a great post. We're taking a look at and, and, and reading. Again, you can find it at johnmorrisonline.com slash 64. I'll link to it over there. And you can take a look at this article. All right. So, as I mentioned, coming up in the show, we have a great show for you. Coming up next, I'm going to be getting into Apple versus the FBI and my thoughts on this whole fiasco. You definitely will not want to miss this. You're listening to John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. Hey, everybody. As you probably know, I constantly harp on using content to help you grow your audience and build your credibility as a web developer. But your web presence is nothing without a great hosting provider. So if you haven't yet, get your website up and running with a fast, reliable, and well-supported web host, Bluehost, for less than six bucks a month. You can check it out and get Bluehost's best price over at johnmorrisonline.com slash bluehost. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the John Moore Show, johnmorrisonline.com. All right, let's get into this drama between Apple and the FBI. So if you haven't heard about this, it would probably be worth going on Google and taking a look at this. But to, to to break it down in a nutshell, this goes back to the San Bernardino attacks here in the United States. And the FBI has an iPhone from one of the attackers in that particular attack and they want to get access to the information on the iPhone. Now, from what I've read and been able to gather, Apple had some of the information that was in iCloud that they've given. They've basically given the FBI everything that they can. However, they don't have access Apple doesn't have access to the individual iPhone and, and the ability to unlock it because they don't have access to the passcode and all that stuff, and they never could. The The way that these phones are designed, they're designed so that really the individual user has ultimate kind of control over that. Now, so what the FBI is after, the best way I can think to explain this from everything that I've read is essentially the way the security with the iPhone works is that there's your personal passcode. And then there's uh, some sort of signature that is unique to the phone um, that helps encrypt all of the data on the phone. So what happens is, is whenever you 
use your passcode, it essentially is able to de decrypt the information so that you can then access it. But then as soon as it's locked, it's it's basically all un it's all encrypted again or whatever. Something along those lines. Um, and Apple can't really do anything about that. Okay, they, they, they can't really decrypt it. All they can do, and this is what the FBI wants them to do, is that there's a mechanism in there that if you enter the wrong passcode more than 10 times, after the 10th time you enter it wrong, that the iPhone will automatically wipe all of the data on the phone. And so what the FBI wants Apple to do is to create a version of the iPhone, of the operating system, that doesn't have that feature in it. So that then the FBI can brute force attack the phone and, uh, you know, and it wants to get rid of also, there's a time delay in iPhones too. So if after like the third time, you have to wait a minute and then after the fifth time, you have to wait like five minutes, etc. The FBI wants Apple to get rid of all those things so that the FBI can brute force attack the phone with different passcodes until they crack it. Um, and so that's the basic gist of what's going on here. Now, a Apple has, of course, pushed back and said that they're not going to do it. They, uh, as of, well, today, February 25th, when I'm recording this, they have filed uh, to dismiss the court order. So they were ordered by the court to assist the FBI in whatever way the FBI wanted. They filed a, a motion to dismiss that. And so it's go essentially going to go back and forth in the court until it gets figured out. Now, I want to give my opinion on this. Um, you know, I, I know that I don't necessarily have any, there's not necessarily anything um, that affects us as web developers in a specific sense, but I do think this affects us in a general sense because I kind of sympathize with Apple, even though I'm not an Apple fanboy, I, I uh, am an Android guy, but our job, like growing up as a, a web developer, you know, one of the things that we take very seriously is security. And it's one of those things that gets drilled into our heads. You now, one of the big things that you worry about with your code is probably is the security of it. I know that's one of the things every time I do something that I'm always concerned that I don't know enough about is security. It's just one of those things that we constantly think about. And now we have a case where a government entity wants, wants a technology company to purposefully undermine their own security. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have a good reason necessarily. I think most people would agree that what happened in San Bernardino was tragic and that everybody wants to find the people that did it and they're responsible. They want to have the information so that that full case can be prosecuted properly. Nobody disagrees with that. But I think what the FBI is asking Apple to do here has much bigger implications. Now, I should preface this by saying that, and I don't want to get too political here, but it's kind of hard to not to with this, but I should preface all of this by saying that I consider myself an anarcho-capitalist. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's fine. It's probably pretty obscure <laughs> political position. 
Um, I actually run a political podcast. You, if you're interested, you can find that at landofthefreepodcast.com. Um, my brother and I run that podcast, and we talk politics over there. But as an anarcho-capitalist, I am very skeptical of the government as a rule. And so when I see something like this, but, you know, even so, I don't think anybody can look at the things that we've seen from the U.S. government when it comes to security issues and privacy issues and so forth. I, I just don't think they have much credit in that regard. And so when you have an agency that's asking for, this is what blows my mind. They're asking Apple to create something that doesn't exist. It's not like they're a regulation where they're saying, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that. Or they're asking Apple to provide information that Apple has and can easily provide. No, 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 no. They're asking them to create a whole new version of their iOS. And in that version, undermine the security that Apple has become known for with their phones. And has put so much effort into creating. When you think about it, it's pretty insane. And here's where it's even crazier to me. The legal precedent that they're using to do that is what's called the All Writs Act. Which was first a part of the Judiciary Act. Back in 1789, 13 years after the revolution. Now, I know people say, well, you know, the Constitution was... This wasn't a part of the Constitution. This was an act. This was just a law that they got together and, and made. So, there's far less long-reaching thought that often goes into laws and acts that aren't a part of the Constitution than the actual Constitution itself. So I think there's a difference. Regardless, we're talking about an over 200-year-old act that's now being used to try and compel Apple to create something out of thin air that undermines their own security. So as a developer, personally, I find it insane that this is even being considered. and. Despite the fact that I'm not necessarily a big fan of Apple, and I don't think Apple always does the right thing, in this particular case, I think Apple is doing the right thing. And I think, as developers, should's a strong word, but I think we should support Apple in this. Because if the FBI can compel Apple to do this, how long is it before they start to compel the things that do directly affect us? And what kind of nightmare would that create for us if they were able to do that? So I think this is an important, important case. I'm paying very, very close attention to it. I think it could have a tremendous effect uh, if the FBI wins on what happens with technology and the internet going forward because it would set a very, very dangerous precedent. And we've seen time and time again, at least here in the United States, from our government that what our 
at the time called one-time rulings that are just in this specific scenario end up becoming the basis for further and further uh, moves by the government years later. And this one could be especially dangerous. All right, so a little political opinion there for you, but this is a kind of a big thing going on in the tech world. I wanted to make sure and give my opinion on that. All right, coming up next, we're going to get into the mental game and how to win the mental game as a developer. After that, we're going to get into how I create catchy YouTube thumbnails in Photoshop. Thinking of social media as branding as a freelance developer and how you can use that to your advantage. And as always, our Q&A of the week. You're listening to John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. Today's episode is brought to you by the Complete Web Developer Course by Rob Percival on udemy.com, where you can learn HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP, MySQL, WordPress, mobile apps, and more inside one convenient course so you can shortcut the time it takes to start earning your full-time income as a web developer. John Morris Show listeners can get an exclusive 85% discount on the course by visiting johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc. That's johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc. Hey everybody, welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. We're going to be talking about how to win the mental game, and I have a special guest with me here today, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Michael Phoenix, who is a, what's your official title? Uh, Officially a senior consultant. Senior consultant at, can you name the company or no? Tango Analytics. Tango Analytics. And what does Tango Analytics do? Uh, We specialize in location analysis to um, identify where retail stores, logistically speaking, would um, would be the best place to put a new new store. So it, it looks at saturation if you have too many stores in an area, or if there's a ideal spot that's low cost, et cetera, et cetera. It takes all those into consideration to determine where to put a retail store, as well as after that we also implement soft different um, integrated workplace management systems. Okay. Now, and you work with one. You particularly work with one in particular, right? Yeah, I work with IBM Tririga. Tririga, okay. So I was never, I didn't know what that was when you told that to me, but maybe the somebody listening knows what that is now. Um, so you work with that system, and you are you able to name some of the clients that Tango has that work with? Um, no, not necessarily, but they're well for, known. They're well known Fortune 500 companies, high level enterprise, big, big um, asset portfolios. Okay. So. This is part of the reason why I wanted to bring Mike on here because if if you go back, what, three years, four years? Yeah. Three. You were in college at the time. Right. Weren't working for them or real, anybody uh, else development-wise. Yeah, I mean, at that time I was finishing up with college and getting into the freelance game. And so I was primarily doing freelance. And I have been doing that off and on for several years, but primarily doing college and freelance. Yeah, so it was... Just a few years ago yeah. that you were doing that, and I, I I remember at the time, probably I would say if someone told you what you would be doing three years now later, I don't know if you would have – might have even made you a little nervous, let yeah, alone sure. believable. Right. I would. I mean, it would have been – that would be the ideal situation, 
but um i wouldn't i wouldn't have necessarily assumed that that would be the case right so very very quick transition right to where you're at now doing well for yourself yeah. and i don't want to get into yeah. income and stuff but doing very well working for a big company working on big projects and a big part of you making that transition and we've talked a lot about this is the mental game, the mental aspect of it, because, you know, it, it takes some <laughs> mental work and yeah. some mental fortitude to go from being in college and, and, and doing some freelance work to now working for, I believe Tango itself is a fortune 500 company, correct? Or um, no, but we're 500 fastest growing. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. To working for a company like that and working with clients that are fortune 500 companies that takes right some mental fortitude. So I wanted to talk to you specifically about this. Now, I'd asked you before the show, I don't know what you're going to say about any of these things, but I did ask you what were kind of the things you wanted to talk about. And so you named off three things and we're going to go through these. And the first one was keeping a grasp on the bigger picture. The second one was being emotionally intelligent. And the third one, I kind of altered the the wording a little bit. <laughs> I I call it dealing with the dirty. Yeah, or yeah. you call it that, I guess. <laughs> you you called it dealing with internal roadblocks. So I want to go through these one by one and have you explain what you mean by these and maybe give us a, a story or a specific example of your own path of 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 how this has been important for you. So the first sure. one is keeping a grasp on the bigger picture. What why why is that important? Well, I mean, it, it largely has to do with scope creep. You know, scope creep is an issue in the development world all over the place. And, you know, for, for clients, the bottom line is them getting into a production system and them being able to use it, right? And in in the process of putting that system in place, they're going to want every all these little neat gadgets and this and that. But you also have to manage your time, your well-being, and your your state of being such that you're not just going to agree to everything. Now, before you go on, I know that you went through this and heard, learned yes. this the hard way, right? <laughs> because I remember us talking about when you first started there. Yes. So maybe yes. you can talk a little bit about that. I mean, I, I, I still deal with it. You know, I, I want to be able to deliver anything to my client. But, you know, when I even, even starting out in freelance, the thing that, the thing that was the uh, the biggest mental shift for me then that took me to where I'm at now is the idea that my my clients are paying me to figure things out. They're not mm. paying me because I already have it figured out. Right. The client the client has a unique con uh, context. It's custom to them. Right. I have to jump in and say, okay, I can figure this out. I can take what you got and I can make it happen. Now, I remember when you first started freelancing, I remember this because you would get into a project and you were not charging for when you would do the research. research you right. would only charge for when you were actually writing code. Correct. And that I think a lot of beginners, I had that impulse when I first started freelancing. Fortunately, I had been writing code at that point long enough and I had been involved in sales and some other things in my life long enough that I was able to kind of push back against it, but I know I felt it. Yeah. Yeah. And I state, I state that as like my shifting point and, and in relation to the bigger pictures, because 
in the bigger picture, it's not feasible to spend an inordinate amount of time doing research and not get paid for it. Right. And the bottom line is, is that you're not going to have it figured out before going into it. And like making the switch to that's what you're getting paid for is to figure it out. That helps you keep a grasp on the bigger picture and, and saying, okay, I don't have to figure out everything that they want. I just need to make it minimum viable system mm-hmm. that gets the job done. And big picture wise, it's better for the client for you to be in a good mental state. Yes. And it's better for the client for you to not let scope creep derail a project. Right. And that gets into the second and third ones. Right. So speaking of, let's go ahead and dive into the second one. The second one you said is being emotionally intelligent. So what do you mean by that? Uh, Being emotionally intelligent to me is based on being able to feel an emotion in your body, put an accurate label on it, know that it's present and not let it affect the communication process. Mm. And I mean, that's, that's easier said than done, but in terms of client work, for me, time and time again, it's been proven to be one of the single most important things to the process. Because mm-hmm. if I'm not able to, if I let my stress and frustration of the client wanting one more thing get in the way of actually communicating with the client, it cuts off all relationship. And at that point, the client's starting to say, is this developer able to do this? And they they start to ask all these other kinds of questions. Yeah, it, it actually makes that worse. You're right, right. Because they get nervous. Yes. And this is one of the things that I, and maybe you can speak to this, I say all the time. As developers, we always focus on our technical skill. But clients value things like reliability and communication and all the, what you call, soft skills. Yeah. More than they do technical. It's like you said, you're being paid to figure it out. Not necessarily yeah. what technical expertise you the, currently have. The technical, the technical details is a black box to the client, unless mm-hmm. you're talking with a technical individual. But even then, if you specialize in a in a specific system like I do, and you're talking to someone else who's technically capable, yeah, this, like the system, when you talk to me about Tririga, right. it's a black box. Right. I, don't, I don't know <laughs> first so thing if, about it. If you dive into the technical details with a client, especially the business oriented client side of the client, um, they they get lost and they're like, why am I even in this meeting? I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't care. Just get yeah, it done. This is what I needed to do and get it done. Yeah. You know? So and I, I constantly have to remind myself of that too. Cause sometimes I have, I have a tendency to over explain to clients what I'm going to do. Yeah. I always tell them, look, I'm going to do all this, but I, I always, I have this impulse where I want to tell them what I'm going to do. And I, I can see it when they like half the time they're like, uh, okay. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just do it. Now, some clients do want that. Yeah. And it's beneficial to establish a layer of. I mean, that goes into the emotional intelligence thing. Like yeah. you being able to sense in the relationship that yeah. the client wants it or a client doesn't want it, and be able to respond in that way. Yeah. All right. Let's get to this last one now, which is dealing with the dirty yeah. <laughs> or the internal roadblocks. What are you referencing there? Uh. Well, I I go back to my example of, um not not charging a client for my research for me that was an internal block based on my my paradigm around my competence or my capabilities mm-hmm. right at that point in time i was looking at the way that i myself essentially i was looking at myself in such a way where i didn't feel capable or i didn't feel competent so 
I'm not going to project myself out there as, you know, I can do this, blah, 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 and charge a client for it. I'm going to say, I'm only going to charge for what I am able to deliver to you, mm. right? So that that internal roadblock for me kept me from one, having a stress-free working environment mm-hmm. to be able to actually go in and learn what I needed to learn. It was, I was, I always felt a lot of pressure, you know, and that whether the pressure is real or it's manufactured based on how you're looking at things, it limits your, I've, I've found that it limits my ability to be more effective in what I'm doing. Yeah. I, I mean, I, if anybody's listened to the show for any amount of time, will know this. You know, when when you talk when I talk to developers, it's always, well, you know, this function or how do I write this or how do I do this? And, you know, from my perspective, having been doing this as long as I have, those are never the most important things. The the biggest hurdles you, you have will always be the mental part of it yeah. and those mental roadblocks. And learning how to recognize them and deal with them is the most important thing to do with your career. And I Anybody now, including myself, and I'm actually aware of several of these, but anybody at any point in their career has an internal roadblock that's keeping them where they're at. So if you're if you're frustrated and you're like trying trying to figure out why you're not moving faster, why you're not getting where you want to get quicker, the, it isn't about something out there on the computer screen or in your code editor. It's about what's going on inside. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think for me, an example that I often look to is if I am having a situation, like if I'm not able to figure out a function or figure out, you know, the, the algorithm I need to get the job, get it to flow right or whatever. And I I feel stuck being able to identify that I feel stuck mm-hmm. and take a step back from that and go, okay, I'm stuck on this. It's okay that I'm stuck. I'm, you know, that happens. And then from that point, the having the uh, soft skill to be able to reach out to someone who may have the answer, to be able to go put a yeah up on on Stack Overflow a question yeah. that is relevant, and, and you know be able to to articulate the question in such a way where it's a benefit to the community, and have the feedback, the dialogue to be able to work through that issue, and to be able to put it up on Stack Overflow in the first place. I'm, I don't need to put it up on Stack Overflow. I'm, I can figure this out by myself. Uh, I, yeah, or, I'll, look, I'll look weak if I put it up there. Yeah, I'll look or, not. Yeah, yeah, all they'll, that stuff. They'll, they'll, they'll. Then people will see I'm an idiot, or right. Whatever. Yeah, that. And look, the developer community doesn't help itself in that regard <laughs> no. because there's plenty of people out there who will will ridicule and all that. Yeah, but you know, I think the thing that I always remind myself when I see those people, and I see there's some really successful developers I know that are like that mm-hmm. that will immediately jump to you're an idiot this that or the other the thing that you have to re- remind yourself is and it's it's not cliche it's not me just saying it because it sounds good and makes me feel better it's actually true those people are probably much more insecure than you are yeah and that's why they react the way that they do they were probably actually called an idiot at some point in their career and it really hurt them and affected them. And that's why they do that. Right. Uh, and that's why I try really, really hard not to ever, when someone asks a question, act like it's a stupid question or this, that, the other. Now, I get people who call me names 
<laughs> those people can get it, but <laughs> other than that, right? Uh, all right, all right. So I want to thank. We'll wrap it up there. Got to uh, get on to our next segment, but I want to thank Mike for stopping on uh, and talking with us this a little bit. I think has some valuable insight that I uh, can share in terms of your progress and and everything that's happened to you in the last few years. So coming up next, we're going to get into how I create catchy YouTube thumbnails in Photoshop. This is going to be. This is, you know, I talk about con- creating content all the time. Well, you got to get that content watched. And YouTube, the thumbnails that you use on YouTube or blog posts or whatever are the first thing people see. So they're one of the most important things that you could do. So I'm going to show you how I create mine coming up in the next segment. You're listening to the John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. So I just realized something. I'm always harping on how important creating blog content is for getting new clients to your web design business. But what if you don't have a blog and you're not sure how to get one set up? Well, don't worry because I've just created a new tutorial on how to start your blog in less than 15 minutes. So in less than 15 minutes from now, you could have your blog up and running and creating content that's going to help you attract new clients for your web design business. In order to take this tutorial, you want to head on over to johnsbloggingtutorial.com. Again, that's johnsbloggingtutorial.com. Head on over and let's get your blog started today. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. In this segment, I'm going to be talking about, I'm going to show you how to create or how I create my YouTube thumbnails. Now, this is important because... As you know, I constantly harp on creating content in order to build your audience and help you get freelance work. Now, one of the most important things about the content you create is the images that you use to really kind of promote that content. Now, especially on YouTube, this is important because the thumbnail image is the first thing that people look at. And if that thumbnail image doesn't grab people's attention, then they're not likely to even read the title of your video and, of course, very unlikely to click through and actually watch it. So I do spend, well, I, I, I have spent a lot of time on my YouTube thumbnails. I've kind of developed a system and a template that I work from, so it goes a lot quicker now, but I spent a lot of time tinkering with this. And if you go to my channel page, you'll see several different varieties of YouTube thumbnails. And the ones that I've started using as of late, which I'm going to show you how to create here, have been the ones that have worked the best. Now, so if you're watching this on YouTube, obviously you'll be able to see the screencast here. If you are listening on iTunes or SoundCloud or uh, one of the audio-only versions of the podcast, and I'll do my best to explain this, but you may want to hop on over to youtube.com slash John Moore's video and check out this video over on YouTube so you can actually see me walk through this. All right, so the thumbnail I'm going to show you how to create is actually the thumbnail for this video. And so again, if you're listening on iTunes audio only version, it's probably the thumbnail that you saw for this particular episode that you're looking at. That's the thumbnail I'm going to show you how to create. So for everybody on YouTube, you can kind of see this here. Uh, this is the you, the thumbnail I'm going to show you how to create. So I've created this over here. I'm going to actually go back into my history in Photoshop, and I'm going to go all the way back 
to opening this up. So this is the thumbnail I had for the last episode. I used this same template. This is the first thing, use a template. So I use the same template for every thumbnail video or video thumbnail that I create. All right. So once I have this open, then the first thing that I do is I want to find this background image here. This is probably the most important part of this particular of, of this thumbnail because you want something that represents what you're going to be talking about, but also gets attention and stands out uh, in order to, to get people to look at it. Now, it's very much an art to this. You know, I uh, I wouldn't claim that every time every one of these that I do is perfect. In fact, this one you're looking at here, which was the the thumbnail for my last video, episode 63, I'm not necessarily completely in love with, but it was kind of a difficult one for me to figure out. So it's an art, but uh, with enough time, you you kind of get better at it. All right. So in order to do that, then I use a couple resources. The first one's called Libre Stock. So it's librestock.com. And what this does is it's actually a search engine for a number of stock photo sites that are out there. But the nice thing about these uh, stock photo sites is they are do whatever you want stock photos. So you don't have to worry about royalties. You don't have to worry about credit. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. These are completely 100% use however you want. Uh, stock photo sites. And this actually aggregates them. And so there's 45,930 pictures that you can search here as of right now. And this number has been growing. All right. So you can see uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see there's a nice big search box right at the top. If not, you can go ahead and click on over to Libre Stock and you'll see it. And you can just do a search for anything. So I typed in yellow cab and you hit find photos. And it'll bring up a list of different photos that are on these stock sites. And you can see these are nice, high-quality photos. So these aren't bad photos. Um, and so you can click through. You can kind of pick one. And you'll notice it says download at Pexel. So if I click this, and so this is some of the what you'll run into with Libre Stock a little bit, although it's pretty rare. Let's try this one here. And so you click through and it actually takes you to that stock photo site. So Libre Stock is an aggregator. When you actually click to download a, a particular image, it'll send you over to the site where it aggregated from. And then you can download. So you see it's a free download. And you can download this image. And there's no rights or anything like that. Okay, so that's the first resource that I use. The problem with this is that it's stock photography. And so there's not, if you're doing something related to current events or, or famous people or something like that, and you want to have a picture of them, you're probably not going to find that in here. There's a few people that'll show up in here, but not a ton. So this is more just generic type photos, really great photos, but more generic. So for stuff that's related to, that's a little more specific, then I use Flickr. And so in this particular case, the thumbnail is about Apple's fight with the FBI. So I wanted a picture of Tim Cook. And you're not going to find that on Libre stock. I actually did a search and there's nothing on there. So I came over to Flickr and did that search. And there's not a ton over here, but there are a few things and I found one that worked. Now, a couple things with this. First off, you'll see over here, I've done this drop down and I've selected commercial use and mods own allowed. You need to make sure that you 
select this one because especially if you're uh, running ads on your YouTube videos, then uh, as far as I'm aware, that's technically commercial use. So you need to make sure that that's allowed because these images do come with copyrights and restrictions. Also, you need to make sure mods are allowed because we're going to modify this picture. So I always click this one and see what I can find. Then once I find an image that I like, and I like this one down here, and the reason I like this one, which is the one that you'll see on the thumbnail image, is because one, it has this nice black space over here to the left, so I can put some text in there and it'll actually show up. And then it kind of has, he kind of has that look on his face like, what in the world? So it kind of fits the whole story of Apple versus the FBI. All right, so I like this image. If we click through to it, then you'll notice that's kind of a smaller image. If we go to the download link, it's a 700 by 350 image. Now the thumbnails I created are 1280 by 720, so it's quite a bit smaller than what I I actually create. But with the way we do this, that's not such a big deal because the graininess and all that stuff that would happen from us blowing this up is gonna be mitigated with how we actually modify this. So it's not that big of a deal. I mean, you, would, you wouldn't wanna use an image that's maybe 200 by 300. That would probably end up looking pretty bad still. But, you know, 700, 800, somewhere in that range would probably work. Okay, so I'm going to use this image. I've already downloaded this image. And the other thing we need to pay attention to here is the rights that are reserved here. So if you click on this link, it'll take you to the Creative Commons here. And it'll tell you, you can share this. You can adapt and remix and transform. That's what the mods allowed is. But you have to give attribution, so you have to give appropriate ed, uh, credit, provide a link to the license, and indicative changes were made, and then you have to share like. So if you modify the image, you have to distribute it with the same license. Well, I'm not really going to distribute it, but I'll, I'll link to the license anyway, and I'll show you how we do that in a little bit. But you need to pay attention to this stuff because you don't want to have videos out there that have aren't giving proper credit for the images you're using because you never know that could come back on you and it's easy to, to, to handle this and I'll show you how to do that. All right, so with that said, this is the image that I want. So uh, I have downloaded that image and already, but you would just go ahead and download that. And so we'll go back into Photoshop and I'm just gonna drag this image over into my Photoshop here. Now you'll see that it puts it uh, well, well, we'll talk about the layers here in a second. So I'm going to just kind of expand this out and I'm going to kind of, I, I want Tim Cook kind of over to the right side like this. So I have room for my text on the left-hand side. Now you could flip it and put him over here. If, if the picture were reversed, I do that sometimes you'll notice on some of my thumbnails, but to me having him like this, I want to make sure and get his hands in there as well but I want to have enough room for my text. So um, just kind of line it up in a way that makes sense, and we'll go ahead and save that. Now you see it's kind of blurry and grainy, but that's not going to matter too much because we're going to modify this. All right, now over here on the bottom right in the layers, I'm going to drag this all the way down to where my other image is because you'll see here I have this levels layer here. So if you come down here and you go to levels, it'll add a levels layer. And I always do this with the pictures because you want to have high contrast pictures. High contrast pictures stand out. So the way that you do that 
is you pull from the left on the levels meter. That's going to darken the, the dark areas. So you notice like his shirt right here. If we pull this to the right, his shirt gets really, really black. And then you want to pull from the right, which is going to make the picture brighter. And so what that ends up doing is you have really bright brights and really dark darks. And that creates a high contrast type picture. Now, you don't want to overdo it. I mean, that's probably a little bright, but you know, you want to make sure it kind of pops off of there and has some high contrast because that stands out to people. All right, so I just make that simple adjustment with the levels layer. And then the next thing that I do is I'm going to come up here to the filter gallery. And actually, I need to select my image. So I'm going to come up here to the filter gallery. And I'm going to go to poster edges. And I do this to create what I want is a nice thick kind of outline right here on him. You see on his hands right here, there's a nice thick outline around there. That's what I want because I'm going to come back with another filter. And if I don't have these nice thick outlines, then it's kind of, you'll see it'll kind of erode away at, at the picture a little bit. So you want to make sure and get these nice thick outlines on here uh, to create that uh, separation from the rest of the picture. So we'll go ahead and hit OK on that. And then I'm going to come in here back into the filter gallery and I'm going to use the cutout. And so this is the one, if you don't have these nice thick outlines here, you'll see, for example, right up here, it starts to kind of eat away at his head a little bit here. Um, if I turn the levels down, you'll see it starts to bleed uh, with the rest of the picture. So uh, I turn the levels. Usually I end up turning these way up, but you can kind of play with this a little bit. You want to you, you wanna be able, you want to have it look kind of cartoonish, but you also want to make sure that you can actually kind of see what the picture is. You can also play with the edge simplicity like this. The one problem with that is you'll notice as you turn it down on his face, you kind of get these little splotches. And so I tried to turn it up enough to get rid of those without eating away at the picture too much. So I kind of like this. If we uh, raise that or save that, then you can kind of see that when it's smaller and if look at the picture down like this, you kind of get a sense of what it is. So you just kind of got to play with that a little bit, but I, I really have been liking this kind of almost cartoon look here. Uh, it's just maybe some of my aesthetic, but I just, I like the way that it looks. The other thing that you can do here is you can go to edit and let's see, yeah, edit and well, it, it doesn't actually have it now because I, um, I nudged the photo. If I go back to filter ga gallery, you can usually, it'll have a thing here that says you can fade the the filter gallery. You can fade in the image from the background a little bit. There's probably a way to find that in Photoshop. I usually just do it right after I uh, do the filter gallery. And matter of fact, let me see if I can get that back up here. Yeah, it's not coming up up here now, but uh, normally you can kind of fade it a little bit. So anyway... You can fade it if you want. I'm not going to on this particular one. I like the way that this looks. All right, so that's the background image. Again, you'll see over on the left-hand side here, I have a nice black area where the text will show up. So that's the next thing I'm going to do. So the text that I'm going to uh, use here is, if I remember right, it was, is Apple wrong? with the FBI, I think it was, something like that. So you wanna have text that's for, you wanna have text that, is, you wanna make it 
engaging. In this case, I'm going semi-controversial, you know, but you also want to have text that attracts the right people to, to, for your audience. So for example, in this case, I want to attract people who would agree with my opinion uh, that Apple is in the right on this. So, um, I'm going, it's counterintuitive, but you would think that then what you would say is that Apple is right. But actually, people who agree that the that Apple is in the right here probably aren't going to click on a, a title that says Apple is right because they're like, well, yeah, I already agree with that. Instead, they're going to click on something that seems like someone disagrees. And so they're going to jump in and want to... Uh, argue essentially <laughs> the that point. And so that's kind of what I'm doing here. I want to attract people who agree uh for for a number of different reasons, but um so I'm actually making it look like maybe I disagree so that they'll jump in then they'll listen and then they'll realize, "Oh, I agree with this guy." All right? So uh that's the idea here. You want to kind of be a little bit controversial in that sense, but also make sure you're attracting the right audience. Now, you may have seen what I just did there. If you're watching on YouTube, I just upped the size of the font. You have to remember, I upped it to 56, and then I the kerning here, I changed to exactly 56 too. I like the letters to be nice and tight here. You want to make sure that the lettering is as big as possible, and you try to use as few words as possible, because you have to remember, these are going to be really small, um, all the way down to maybe even this size here, which is super small. And you can still, you know, it's a little weird looking, but you can still read it at that size. So you want to make sure that you can read it at when it's really, really small. Um, because that's how it's going to show up across most of YouTube. All right, so I've changed that. Uh, the last piece here then is the color of this text. So this is based off of the old design. What I do is I actually, and we've talked about color theory before. Um, I come over here. Actually, let's switch this. I come over here and I'm going to grab a sample of this blue. So the reason I want this blue is because it's kind of the dominant color. It's the color that you see mostly on this page. Now, you could pick some of these other ones here. Uh, you know, you just kind of got to pick one and go with it. But I picked this one here. And then what I do is I come over to this interactive color wheel. So if you just Google interactive color wheel, this is the number one result. And so you pay, I paste this in. Oh, let me get that color back. For some reason, it didn't want to. Right, and so we paste in this color, and then you use this to find complementary and supplementary colors. So if we click this, it'll give you a complementary color. Well, it's brown. Brown's not something that's going to pop off the page and get people's attention, which is what I want. This kind of darker blue isn't either. So I just kind of click through these as greens, potential. Uh, there's this kind of reddish, but not really. Uh, this purple is the one that initially stood out to me. And then, you know, maybe this purple. A lot of these colors don't really work that well. So of all of them, it was this purple that stood out to me. So I grabbed this. I know this is too dark, but I'm going to come over here and I'm going to paste this in. And then I'm going to select my text down below here. And uh, let's get that dark color. And I know that's too dark. That's not going to be very readable. But I can drag it up and make it brighter. 
and kind of play with it until it gets to a color that I think will work. And, and this is actually the color that I settled on here. So it's about right in here. And so it's, it's partly complementary with this blue, which is what you want for color, your color theory, but it's a little bit brighter. So it actually stands out. So if we look at this image really, really small, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that really pops out that blocking FBI text there. Okay. So that's, and at this point I would just change the episode number because this is episode 64. And I always put this on there or have been as of late. <laughs> so we know what episode it is. And that's, that's the finished image right there. So that's the thinking that goes into how I create my YouTube thumbnails, some of the technical aspects of where I find stuff and so forth. So a little bit longer segment here, but I wanted to show you that this is really important for your blog post images, your social media images, your YouTube thumbnails, etc. Because this is really the ad for your content. And so you want to make sure it's as compelling as possible. All right, coming up next, we are going to get into a little freelance and we're going to be talking about social media as branding and how to use it to uh, to help you get more freelance clients, to help you get more business and so forth. You're listening to John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. John Morris here for the complete web developer course by Rob Percival on udemy.com. Now here's the deal with this. Do you ever get frustrated constantly searching the internet for tutorials to learn how to code? Are you worried that learning how to code is taking longer than it should? Do you just wish you could learn everything in one convenient place so you can get on with earning your living as a web developer? Well, that is exactly why Rob created the Complete Web Developer Course. Everything you need to know HTML, CSS, JavaScript, jQuery, PHP, MySQL, WordPress, APIs, and mobile apps in one convenient course. And you know it works because Rob has over 183,000 students and the most five-star ratings of any course on Udemy. Now here's the best part. John Morris Show listeners can get an exclusive, and this is just for you guys only, an exclusive 85% discount on the course simply by visiting johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc. So look, quit pulling your hair out trying to find good tutorials on the web. Do the smart thing and hit up my man Rob's complete web developer course with the slick 85% discount right now. Visit johnmorrisonline.com slash cwdc and you'll be all set. Hey everybody, welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This segment, I want to talk about social media and when I talk about branding. And this comes up for me because I've actually been spending a lot of time lately working with local businesses. And local businesses are still, unlike developers and a lot of online businesses, still do a lot of traditional advertising. And one of the big pushbacks you get when you work with local clients is they want to talk about the ROI of social media and how does it actually translate into dollars and cents. And so the way that I approach it and the way 
first off, the way I look at it myself and the way that I relay it to local clients and the way that I want you to start thinking about it for your own business uh, as a freelancer is you need to think of social media as branding. So if you're not fa- if if that doesn't necessarily immediately make sense to you, there's kind of two big schools of thought when it comes to marketing. There's branding and then there's direct marketing. And a lot of people who use and believe in branding will say bad things about direct marketing and a lot of direct marketers will say bad things about people who engage in branding. Now, I particularly having kind of seen both worlds uh am completely fine with using both. In fact, I think a well-rounded marketing strategy includes both. And, and here's a quick reason why. If you're a direct marketer who thinks branding is silly, the way to think about this is, yes, you can write a Google ad and a high-performing sales letter and drive traffic to that sales letter and make sales. But if in that sales letter, you really get in people's face to get the conversion, oftentimes that's going to create, it'll create an effect where they buy your product, but also create an effect where they they walk away from it with a, maybe a negative taste in their mouth. And you know, as a direct marketer, that a good sales letter might convert at what, one to 2%, maybe 3%, even a phenomenal one up at what, 10%. That means you're still missing out on 90 plus percent of those people. And what are those 90% of people that walk away going to do? I mean, we all know about word of mouth. Well, if you're irritating and ticking people off in your sales material as a direct marketer and have 90% of them walking away, what are those 90% going to say? And in a context of the internet, especially, where everybody is now interconnected, that word is going to get around about you. And eventually, no matter how well you write your sales letter, it's not going to convert. Or you could look at it, the flip side is, if you do a good job of building relationships and giving value to people, and branding yourself in a positive way, when people show up to your sales letter, it's a foregone conclusion. Now, I know this from experience because if you go to my hire page on my website, it's not it's not like a great direct response page. I'm sure any direct response co- copywriter worth a darn could go look at it and point out a million flaws. But you know what? It converts pretty well. You know why? Because by the time people get there, they've already watched several YouTube videos and read a bunch of articles and probably even received source code from me and et cetera, et cetera. So when they get to the higher page, they already know they want to hire me. They're just going there as a formality. So that's the interplay for me between direct marketing and branding. And so you want to think of social media as branding. Think of it as the park bench or the billboard or the radio ad, or the TV ad. Except there's a few key differences between social media and those things. One, you can actually track really well on social media, especially with the advertising programs that are out there. You can tweak 
you can test, and you can get actual real analytics. Unlike what they do for billboards, which have a guy stand on the side of the street and click a button every time a car goes by to count how many cars go by. Okay, that's great, but how many of them actually looked at the billboard? There's a difference between driving by it and actually looking at it, right? So you can actually te- you can actually track m- much better on social media than you can in traditional advertising. You can also, those people, they can't follow a billboard. They can't subscribe to a billboard or a park bench, right? They can't do any of that, but they can on social media. And so you can actually build assets in terms of your following online. You can follow up with those people and you can build relationships with those people. You can't do that with a billboard or a park bench or a radio ad. The other thing that's different about it, and this is the most important thing, is that you can give value. So you can actually, instead of annoying people with an ad in the middle of their favorite show or a billboard that they don't even look at or a park bench that they may or may not even see the ad on it, you can actually give them something of value in a YouTube video or a Facebook video or a post or something on Medium, or on your blog. You can give them value and make the the branding experience and the top of mind awareness and all of those things that we talk about with branding, you can make it positive and you can actually use it to go further and build trust. And so this is kind of the next key point. Think of social media as branding. And if it's branding, why not brand in a way that people like? If you've noticed most commercials on on TV and, and radio a little bit, but especially TV, they've gone to humor as the primary way that they do their ads to make it entertaining because they want to make their branding less abrasive. They want to get their product in front of you. They want to create that brand equity and that trust because you've seen it a bunch of times. They want to have that top of mind awareness so the next time you're hungry, you think of their brand. But they do want to do it in a way that's less abrasive, that's less annoying. So they've gone a lot to humor. And that's why they've done that. But humor isn't the only route you can take. Entertainment isn't the only route that you can take. You can also do education. And the nice thing about education, not only is it less abrasive, it can actually help you build trust. You can actually help people with your branding and your advertising. You know, I think of every episode of this show that I do as branding material. I'm trying to create a relationship. I'm trying to give you value. I'm trying to build trust so that ultimately, if I ever have something to sell or I point you at a recommendation where maybe I'll get a little bit of commission on, you'll know And you'll trust that I'm doing so out of your best interest. Because I can tell you this much, I wouldn't sit here for an hour and talk on this podcast if I was going to turn around and do something dirty to you on something that I recommend, a product or something that I recommended. I wouldn't put in all the effort on this podcast and then put in no effort on that stuff. I think a lot about that stuff and the things that I recommend. So... Me doing this show and giving value, 
I think of every episode as a branding opportunity. And it's a chance for me to actually help people with my advertising and my branding and my marketing. And what a revelation, right? You can actually help people with your advertising. Your selling of yourself can help people. I mean, look at the comments on some of the YouTube videos and the people that have been helped by them. And, and in a way, it's all advertising for me. So uh, it allows you to be very, very effective in what you're doing and make your marketing and your selling of yourself much more effective, but also you actually get the chance to help people doing it. And you get to build trust. So don't think of social media. If you think of social media as direct marketing and you're, you're focused on the ROI of the exact results you get, then you're probably going to have a rough time. Now, again, over time, yeah, you should see as your assets grow, as your following grows, as your audience grows, you should see generally the income you make as a result of that generally grow as well. And that's, I know that's been true for me, probably true for most of the people that do this same thing. But if you're looking for very specific ROI of the 150 followers that you have on Twitter, you're probably going to be disappointed because it's more branding than it is direct marketing. You actually can help people and give value in your advertising and your branding as opposed to just constantly annoying them. So when it comes to you and marketing yourself as a freelancer, getting hired at a company, building some sort of app that you want to market. Remember, social media is branding and the the best way to brand yourself is to actually help people. You do that and over the long term, you're going to have a lot of success. All right, coming up next, we're going to get into our weekly Q&A. You're listening to John Morris Show on johnmorrisonline.com. A quick question for you. Are you running a WordPress site? If so, then I want to recommend to you the premium WordPress hosting service, WP Engine. Now, what makes WP Engine different than a lot of web hosts out there is that it's designed specifically for WordPress with advanced caching and security implementation to keep your WordPress website up and running and running as fast as possible. And we all know how important speed is on the web these days. So if you're running WordPress and you don't have WP Engine yet, be sure to give it a look. You can get their best price at johnmorrisonline.com slash WP Engine. Again, that's johnmorrisonline.com slash WP Engine, all one word. Check them out. You're going to love your WordPress hosting. Welcome back to the John Morris Show and johnmorrisonline.com. It's now time for our weekly Q&A. And so our first question comes from Najiha Joffrey on YouTube. Hopefully I didn't butcher that too bad. And it says, hi there. May I know what is the difference between building a social network site and a micro-blogging micro site? And which category does Twitter fall under? Any more, I would say that the difference between a social network and a micro-blogging site is negligible. And then Twitter is a good example. Twitter is is really both. It allows you to do micro blogging, which is essentially what tweets are, 
but it's also very much built around the social network. And so, I mean, microblogging sites probably early on were more focused on the blogging part of it. You know, and you still see that with a site like Medium, although I wouldn't call that a microblogging site. But uh, th- th- they tended to be more focused on the content side of it and, and the blogging side of it and giving tools to authors and so forth, whereas social networks were more about the relationships and the interactions with other people. But with, you know, with what so how big social networks have become and how big that aspect of everything has become, they've really kind of almost become one in the same in a sense. Medium's actually a good example too because it started off focused on content. And if you have been on Medium, then you've received some of the emails over the past, I'd say, six months to a year where they've really pushed the idea that Medium is a social network. And so most of the tools that you see coming out lately have been around the social aspect of Medium, not necessarily the writing aspect. Now, obviously, they still do focus on that, and that's a part of what they do. But again, anymore, they're very, very highly interrelated. And so what category does Twitter fall into? I mean, technically, it's both. It's a micro-blogging social network, I guess is the way to say it. So there's not a ton of difference. And I would say if you're thinking of creating a micro-blogging site, then you're going to have to have the social network aspect to it for it to, to be successful. And anymore, if you want to create a social network, there's going to be some micro-blogging aspect to it. So I, I don't know that you can really separate the two anymore. So I, I think they're highly, highly integrated. Um, and it's kind of like the song goes, you can't have one without the other. All right, next question comes with, um, and this is going to, sorry, this is it's your, your Ockley. <laughs> I, I can't even try it that the last name, but says, thanks, John, for sharing this really helpful. Now the question, what are your primary sources for getting clients when you just started out? I tried freelancer.com and Upwork, but clients there offer very unrealistic prices and they don't seem to be serious about their projects. I don't even want to go back and bid on projects there. I've been learning web development design for almost two years now, but it seems like getting my first client will take forever. Any advice on that would be much appreciated. So there's a couple things. You know, I talked earlier in the episode about mistakes that people make. One, the prices, the budget that they set isn't the budget that you have to agree to. Don't be afraid to bid above their budget if you know that it costs more than that. Now, if you're talking about unrealistic pricing in terms of who they ultimately hire, then okay, then there there could be a legitimate beef there. But I've been on these sites. It's not everybody. There are good clients out there who will pay for good help. The problem is you have to prove that you're that good help. And I think to it seems like a lot of developers have a hard time with that, that they shouldn't have to do that. You do. If you want to compete, you do. And the other side of it, they don't seem to be serious about their projects. Again, there's plenty of clients out there that are serious about their projects. I've worked with them. They are there, but you know, you have to, (laughs) it's a site with millions and millions of freelancers, millions and millions of clients, 
millions and millions of projects, there's going to be some sifting that you have to do. So get good at sifting through and knowing exactly what type of project you want to do, you're good at, that you can really deliver on so that you know how to find it on the site. And once you get good at finding those kinds of projects, then you'll probably find that you'll have more success with having serious clients, the right kind of pricing, and actually getting hired for those jobs. That's why I talk about targeting all the time because it's what the most important thing that you can do to, to have success. Now, that said, there are other things that you can do besides just those sites So, or, or focusing on just what's going on inside those sites. So the first thing is, is, you know, uh, you might consider, and you may have heard the 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 ads that are on the episode for this, but a site like TopTal, go there and apply. You can go to johnmorrisonline.com slash TopTal and click on apply as a freelancer. Go there and apply and go through the process. A, you might actually get through and get accepted, and then you're going to be in a very elite group of developers that, you know, the top 3% is what they say, you're going to be an elite group of developers and you're going to have basically have projects coming to you because you've proven that you are at a higher level. Now, there's nothing you don't need to have a bunch of job history to do that. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to have had a bunch of past clients. You don't need to have been a developer for 15 years. You can go there right now and go through that process. The second thing about that is even if you don't make it, you're going to get a you're going to see what it takes to be an elite freelancer because the testing is pretty rigorous so if you really if you think i if if you're really telling yourself hey i'm this great developer and people should be hiring me go prove it go over to toptal and prove it or go to ziptask and prove it go through one of these sites that has these curation processes and prove it and if you if you don't make it through the first time that's fine but now you know you have an idea of what it's going to take and you know where you need to get to and you have a real more realistic approach to how you're doing your freelancing. So that's the second thing that you can do is go to one of these curated sites like TopTal or ZipTask. Again, you can find both those johnmorrisonline.com slash TopTal, johnmorrisonline.com slash ZipTask. The third thing is my pri- going to the kind of the primary question here. My primary sources for getting clients wasn't on the freelance site. It was outside of it. It was YouTube videos. It was blog posts. It was medium posts. It was answering questions on Quora. It was over on WordPress Exchange, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was my primary source of clients. Most of the clients that I got when I was on Elance came from my website, and then I pushed them to Elance to build up my job history, to build up my rankings, to build up my portfolio. And then I would get tons and tons of invites from Elance, and I could pick and choose which projects I wanted to work on from Elance. So very, very quickly was in a position where I wasn't bidding on jobs. I, was, well, I wasn't going out and finding and bidding on jobs. I was being invited to jobs and I got to pick and choose which ones I wanted to work on. That's the position you want to get in. And you do that by creating content outside of the freelance sites. I, I, I say that all the time. If you listen to the show, you probably get sick of me hearing it, but I get these questions all the time and people aren't doing it. So that's the answer. Get out there and do that, and that's where you're going to get your clients. All right, last question comes from actually from Cora.com, and it says, how much uh, of an hour late do I charge with 2,000 build hours on my profile? 
I'm a WordPress developer. I'm not quite sure what's the worth of my profile when I bid on contracts. I hope someone with uh, more experience can answer my question. Right, so 2,000 build hours is a decent number of hours. That's a pretty decent job history. Now, that doesn't speak to the quality of those hours. I, I would be interested to know what kind of testimonials you have, what kind of portfolio you have, what kind of rankings or ratings you have from clients if you're on a freelance site that does that. But, you know, that's a, that's a decent number of hours. So what should you charge? Well, probably more than what you're charging now if you're asking this question. Uh, you know, it, it, you talk to most develop, freelancers who've been doing it for a while uh, and give any advice on this kind of thing. Most of them will say, just off the top, double your prices just <laughs> by default because most people are way, way undercharging, especially on freelance sites. Um, now, I don't know what you charge, so that may not be entirely the case, but you want to get a good idea of, you, 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 there's there's a couple things that I think of. One, the market will pay what it'll pay. So you have to pay attention to what the market will pay for a particular service. Now, this is why targeting is so important and specializing is so important, because the more targeted and specialized you are, the more precise you can get with your billing and usually the more you can charge because you're being brought in as a specialist to do a very specific thing. Um, but you want to do a little bit of research and see what the market is charging. Now, you don't just want to search the freelance sites. That's going to be the low end. You also want to look, go find somebody who offers it just straight off their website and see what they're charging for the same service and do kind of get a find the top 10 people in your market that do the same thing that you do and see what they charge. And that'll give you an idea of what the market will bear. When you do that, that's what I'm saying, you'll probably find that you could immediately double what you charge and still be within what the market will bear. So you do have to get some idea of what the, the, the market will bear and what you can charge in a particular market. The second thing that I look at is what is it worth to me? This happens to me quite a bit where people ask me to to work on this project or that project and what would I charge and I'll tell them the price and it's not based off of what is fair or what is reasonable. It's based off what it's worth to me. And oftentimes they're like, well, that's, you know, that's way too much. I'm like, I know, I get that, but it's really not worth for me to do it for less than that. So if you want me to do it, then that's what it's going to be. So you also have to keep in mind what you're willing to accept and not drive yourself absolutely insane. The third thing that you have to look at is where are you at in your career? If it's early on, you're probably going to charge a little bit less in order to build up your job history and so forth. Now, if you have 2,000 build hours, then you know, you're probably at a point where you're past that stage. So ultimately, and I know you're going to be annoyed by this, there's no hard, fast number to say this is what you can charge. It depends what your service is. You know, it, it depends what the quality of your work is. I would say as a WordPress developer, if you're really good and you know what you're doing and you can build plugins, you can build themes, 
You can put websites together. You can create things from scratch and build custom things. You know, $100 an hour isn't unreasonable. You know, that's... <laughs> plenty of WordPress developers charge that. So, you know, if, if there's a hard, fast number out there, then okay. Now, if you're really well-known, have really established, you can charge more. If you're a little newer and don't have the, as good of a reputation, even though you have all these build hours... Then maybe it's a little bit less than that, but you know you you just have to you have to see what the market will bear. You have to know what you're willing to take, and you have to know where you are at in your career. Ultimately, it comes down to value. What's the value you provide, and what is it worth to somebody? And if you focus on the value that you provide. Not how many build hours you have. And the value that you provide isn't just the technical part. It's the experience of working with you. It's how reliable you are. How quickly you work. Uh, how well you communicate. Those things also are a part of that. If you're doing a good job with those things. If you're doing better than other developers with those things. Then you can continue to move your price up. So. Again, probably you could double your price now and be okay. Do some market research. Know what you're willing to pay. Know where you're at in your career. And know, know what the value of what you're delivering is really worth. So hopefully that gives you some <laughs> insight into it. Again, it's not an exact science. It's an art. And you have to kind of play with it a little bit. All right, so that'll wrap it up for the Q&A and for this episode. If you like this episode, be sure to like it so that I know that you like this kind of content. If you know somebody would benefit whether it's an individual or a group, then please share this with them. I'd greatly appreciate that. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe. You can do so on iTunes at johnmorrisonline.com slash iTunes over on SoundCloud for your Android device at johnmorrisonline.com slash SoundCloud and on YouTube at johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube. If you have questions for me, you can shoot me an email at john at johnmorrisonline.com and I will try to get that on the show or you can tweet me on Twitter at JP Morris, or you can ask right on YouTube in one of the comments. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, everybody, here's a quick one for you. We all know how important creating blog content is to attract new clients to your web design business. But oftentimes, those first few members of your audience can be difficult to get. Well, I want to help try and get you over that hump and help you get your first few followers. Now, I have a, an audience of over 20,000 YouTube subscribers, email list subscribers, and roughly 30,000 visitors to my website each and every month. And I'd have no problem promoting your website to that audience and helping you get those first few visitors. Now, to get the details on this, you'll have to head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash publicity, but you'll need to do it before you actually start your blog. So head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash publicity and let me help you get those first few visitors and those first few members of your audience.